Well, it's good to be back together and continue on in uh, Mark this morning. Uh, this is a glorious, glorious passage uh, that I wish we had multiple weeks on, uh, but we'll, we just got today. Um, I hope that by the end we can all articulate together why it is so wonderful that Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb and what are the promises of God that he secured in giving his life as the Passover lamb. If, if you've ever uh, experienced the feeling of, of shame and wanting to hide from God uh, after, sin, after you've sinned, and you feel a distance from God, rather than running to God, you run away from God, uh, this is a great passage for you. If you ever feel the, the need to hide yourself and your sin from other people, because you have to kind of keep this nice image, this is a great passage for you. If you ever have felt powerless against sin, or, or weak and not able to continue on to pursue holiness, this is a glorious passage. It's right up your alley. If you've ever felt alone in the world, this passage is for you. If you've ever had uh, the struggle of feeling like you can't forgive someone, this is a great passage to go to. Or if you ever feel like you shrink back from hard situations, whether that be a hard conversation you need to have or just a circumstance you need to enter into that God's asking you to enter and you want to shrink back because of fear, this is a good place to go. I think if Mark were here uh, today, he would stand here before us and say, Believers, you who follow Christ, receive the promises that have been secured by the ultimate Passover lamb. Live in the good of them, the unshakable hope we have, because that lamb was sacrificed on our behalf. So we'll work through that. Well, hopefully you'll see the promises that are secured in it. Uh, I, I see at least four uh, that happen in the passage. Uh, but let's work, make our way through. Uh, we'll just, hopefully we'll get through everything today. But uh, it starts off with the preparations, verses 12 to 16. The preparations for this great night. Let's read that again, 12 to 16. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So this is the, the preparation for the Passover. So let's just rem remind ourselves what the Passover is. Uh, the Passover was a memorial meal, uh, meaning that uh, these elements in the meal are a memorial. They're, they're reminding us of a story. And uh, th this would be the the story that had been told for centuries. So it's, it's going all the way back to the book of Exodus, if you remember the Israelites, they were enslaved under Egyptian rule for 400 years. And at, at near the end there, it was incredibly difficult slavery. They were very, tr treated very harshly. 
and uh, God had promised to rescue his people. And he was going to do it through a prophet named Moses. And in order to do that, uh, God sent, you know, the ten plagues, right? To, to bring the judgment of God on the Egyptians so that they would send the Israelites out. And the ten plagues, the frogs all over the land, the gnats all over the land, uh, hail that destroyed the crops and the livestock. You, you've got the darkness that the, the text says was felt by the people. Uh, of, of course, the last plague, the tenth plague, uh, was the, the killing of the firstborn son of every home in Egypt, except for the homes that had the blood of a sacrificial lamb on the doorposts. And so uh, what was going to happen was the angel of death, God was going to send the angel of death out throughout Egypt, and he was going to kill the firstborn son in every home. But wherever there was a, a lamb that was sacrificed instead of the son, that blood would be on the doorpost, and the angel of death would see the blood and see, oh, the judgment of God was already poured out on that home. The curse was already there. So the, the angel of death would pass over the, uh, that home. The judgment would not land on that son. And you could imagine every son in uh, a home where the Passover meal was sacrificed, making sure dad got the blood on the doorpost there. He says, you know, he says, there's just, he just barely sprinkles it on because the dad's in a hurry. He says, no, 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 let's load that doorpost with blood. Because if my life, if there's not blood on that doorpost. And so the angel of death comes through and he, he brings the judgment on uh, Egypt and eventually the, the, the Egyptians send the Israelites out because there's mourning because death is all in the land and they send the, the people of Israel, Israel out. But the Passover meal then continues on because that's not the end of the story for Passover. Uh, God now has rescued his people out of slavery, but then he brings them to Mount Sinai where he actually gives, gives his people the law. Because now, they ha now, now God's people are under his care, but now they also need to know how to live as God's people. And so Passover meal then celebrates the giving of God's law to his people. And what happened uh, on Mount Sinai there, you remember the, the most famous portion is the Ten Commandments. As God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses to bring to the people. But there's other laws as well, the stipulations of the covenant. And there's a great earthquake and lightning and thunder and the people are terrified. Well, Moses comes down at the base of the mountain and gathers the people and says, this, this is what God commands of you now if you're going to follow him. And the people say, yes, we will do it. We will follow God. We will follow Yahweh. And so in order to enact the covenant or inaugurate it, to rectify it, uh, or rectify it, ratify it, yeah, I'm getting nervous now, I can, my language, uh, what, what has to happen is that this is a fellowship covenant. The people are coming into fellowship with God, but the people are stained with sin. So in order to be cleansed, uh, there, there needs to be a sacrifice of the bulls and the goats, they need to be killed so that the judgment of God doesn't fall on the people. It falls on the, the, the blood uh, or the, the bulls and the goats. So the so bulls and goats are slaughtered in the place of the people so the people can come close, the people are cleansed. But in order to demonstrate that, Moses then takes the blood of the, of the goats and he sprinkles it on the book of the covenant. He sprinkles it on the altar. And then he gathers the people and he sprinkles blood all over the people to say, you have been covered and cleansed with this blood. Rather than you being judged, the bulls were. And now you are in glorious fellowship with God. The covenant has now been inaugurated. 
And so this is everything that's going on in Passover. This is a glorious celebration to remember God's redemption of God's people and bringing them under his care. They are now his. Now, that Passover meal always had to be uh, eaten in the city of Jerusalem. So if you remember, as we've been going through the Passion Week, Jesus does some ministry in, in the city uh, some days, and then he leads, leaves, and he goes out to Bethany for the night. But Passover meal, you have to eat it in, inside the city. And so Jesus, if he wants to eat Passover meal, needs to find a place uh, to eat. But there's a problem. There's not going to be rooms available in the city because everybody is in the city of Jerusalem. The, the, the city swells with people. So this would be a little bit like, you know, if, if the Bucks for some reason got into the NBA finals or whatever, and it's the last game of the series, the final game, and uh, you said, you know what, I think I'm going to go to the Bucks game. And I said, oh, cool, you got tickets? Like, no. I was like, well, what, how are you going to get tickets? Well, I'm just going gonna, gonna to go down to the stadium. Like, when, the game's tonight. When are you going to go? Well, the game's at 6 o'clock. When are you going to go? I'll probably get there at 5 and I'll just pick up a ticket at the door. It's like, that's not quite how it works. <laughs> there's, there's not going to be any tickets available. Those are selling for like $1,000, $2,000. It's not going to be available. It's a little bit what the city is like. And so the disciples are sort of like, how in the world are we going to eat the Passover? Where are we going to go? Well, Jesus has this all taken care of. And you'll, you'll know uh, this is just like chapter 11, remember, when Jesus sends the disciples in to go get a donkey. And it's sort of like, we're going to find the person with the right donkey. Well, it seems that Jesus has this all set up. A man carrying a jar was abnormal in the culture. And so it seems to be that Jesus probably had a room already worked out with someone uh, so that he would send his disciples in. There would be a sign that the disciples would be able to find. Not crazy abnormal. It's not like shouting or blowing a trumpet. But it's abnormal enough, a man carrying a water jar, that the disciples would be able to spot it and then somehow signal to them and he would lead them into the room. And sure enough, they found it just as Jesus had said. Well, we'll leave it there. That's the preparations. Now uh, they are ready to go uh, for this great, great night. And now we find the betrayal at the meal. So let's read 17 uh, through 21 again. And when it was evening, he came to the, with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They all began to be sorrowful. And they all said to him, one after another, Is, is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Because the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So just if, if you try to imagine the meal a little bit, uh, this normally would have been eaten in a sort of a horseshoe uh, set up, and they would be reclining at the table, so sort of like leaning in on their on their sides and leaning in, usually putting one arm in and laying on their leaning on one arm, putting their hand in to eat with the other. And the head of the table, usually if if you're eating with your family, the, the dad would be leading through the meal, uh, or if you're 
it's a teacher gathered with his students, then the, the, the teacher is going to lead through the meal. Because remember, this is a memorial meal, so it's, it takes a long time. It's structured around four different cups of wine. And uh, within that, you tell the story of the Passover. And so there, there's a lot of times where people are bringing in meals, they're bringing in some of the food, and then they take it away, and the host is telling the story. It has, so four wine, four cups of wine, and then three elements of, that you're going to eat. Now, there might be other food that they add in throughout that, but it's three elements that tell the story. You have the Passover lamb, you have the unleavened bread, and you have the bitter herbs. And all three elements tell the story leading up to this great redemption that God did for his people and bringing them out and rescuing them from the Egyptians. Now, this this bitter herbs one uh, probably is happening at this time of the scene, right here with the betrayal. But the bitter herbs are typically uh, horseradish and sometimes parsley if you don't want it that strong. Uh, If if you ever had horseradish, uh, this is one of my favorite parts. Sometimes we'll do uh, what's called the Christian Seder where you kind of do this a Passover, but you celebrate this uh, in showing how it points to Jesus. But the, the horseradish piece, uh, you just get some real horseradish, and there's little white pieces. And uh, especially, it's really fun if people don't know how strong this is. When, once you bite into this, it's, it's incredible pain to the back part of your nose here, and your eyes just tear up. And the host then, as you're partaking of the bitter herbs and you're having this visceral reaction externally and internally, uh, the host then would remind us what the bitterness of slavery was like. And so he would tell the story of the Israelites being enslaved to sin, or enslaved to, to the Egyptians, but also the bitterness of sin and how the people of God were enslaved to it and tried and tried as they had to break themselves free from the power of sin. They could not. They needed to be set free from sin, and they needed to be set free from the the Egyptians who were treating them so harshly. And the the host would be telling the story of that. And all of a sudden, in the middle of this, Jesus then, finishing that part of the story, then would carry it on forward, which would be totally abnormal. This would not be um, typical. Jesus then saying something to the effect to the disciples, now, there's another bitter thing that is going to happen tonight. All, all, of, all of that story that we've been telling for the last several centuries was pointing to a greater bitterness that's going to happen tonight. And it's that one of you who's eating this meal with me is going to give me over to the enemy. Now, the disciples, if you see there, it says that they're sorrowful. They're they're troubled. They're vexed. They're disturbed. And all of them, it says, one after another, are are asking the Lord, is it me? It it seems, my my guess is that they've they've seen their own failure to actually stand with Jesus or or do what he's asking them to do throughout the book now that they realize, like, okay, uh, maybe he's talking about me. And so they're asking him. And Mark, Mark, in Mark's account, he doesn't tell us who it is uh, at this point, but what he does highlight, if you notice, four times throughout that little section, he says, one of you are going to betray me. It's one who's eating with me, he says. It's one of the twelve. It's one who's dipping bread with me in the cup. In other words, this, this is betrayal of the highest order. 
One of his closest friends on earth who had been with Jesus and seen his power and seen his mercy and been under his care, he's going to betray Jesus. But what Jesus wants them to know is that this is not unplanned. Yes, he is going to be betrayed, but this is not plan B. This is, this is not Judas being in control. This is not Satan being in control. This was all called out beforehand. This is why he reminds us, this is, this is going just as it is written. And he calls back up Psalm 41, uh, as John tells us. Uh, John, uh, in Psalm 41, uh, referring to this as a time of David, re- talking about the, his closest one uh, who ate with him, raising up uh, against him. Now in the psalm, uh, of course, if you read Psalm 41, you'll notice that the one who is betrayed actually becomes the victor. He, he, he triumphs over the betrayer, eventually. And so this is just very much like the stone which the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. He has the victory. But this is, this is uh, actually great news for us. We won't spend time on it, but just thinking of the, uh, the idea when you're mistreated or when life is hard, when you're falsely accused or somebody slanders you, and it feels like, what happened? What did I do wrong? Well, God's plan cannot be thwarted. In the greatest betrayal of all human history was going exactly according to plan. We can know that no matter the hardship we encounter, this is not God's plan B. Now, that might make us feel very vulnerable because we don't understand all the pain and heartache that we experience. Why does that happen to us? But rest assured, believer, it is not God's plan B. You're right in line where God has you. He's the author of the story, and he will be with you through it. But that's the the, the betrayal. Uh, Now we get to the climax of the meal that uh, I trust would have been even more shocking to the disciples. This is where Jesus begins to proclaim that he he is the ultimate one that all these feasts were pointing to, the redemption that he's bringing. Read verses 22 to 25 once again. And as they were eating the Passover meal, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples, and he said to them, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, when he had, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Pause there, there. So here, I, in this little section, I think we see f- four promises that are secured by the Passover lamb. The first you see in the bread. Uh, this would have been very typical for the, the host to, to take unleavened bread and give a blessing, thanking God for the provision of bread and breaking it and then passing it to all the recipients, uh, all, the, all the participants of the meal. And in doing this, you would tell the story of why is it unleavened bread? In fact, in part of the Passover meal, you have this question and answer where 
where the question is asked, like, why, why is it unleavened bread today? Why are we eating bread like this? So unleavened bread meaning it doesn't have yeast. And then the host would tell the story. Well, because God's redemption was going to come so quickly, the judgment of God was going to come so fast that the Israelites wouldn't have time to wait for the bread to rise. So they had to make bread that had no yeast in it because the angel of death would come quick and by, at, at midnight and then in the middle of the night, they're sent out of the land. And so this is, this is meant to remind us of how God brought the, the Israelites out of slavery swiftly. God's power and authority acts quick to bring redemption. So that would have been normal, but then Jesus adds to it once again. And he said, oh, by, by the way, these elements, yes, they point back to that redemption, and they have. But all along, they've been pointing to another moment in history that's happening right here. This bread, it's symbolizing, memorializing my body, which is going to be broken. And my body will bring a gr greater redemption. That, that redemption rescued God's people from slavery. This redemption will rescue God's people from sin and death. This is my body. And notice then, um, he says, you, take it. Receive it. Be a participant of it. Be a beneficiary of this bread. Eat it, because then you will participate. And about what the bread is, is trying to point out then is that in the breaking of the body of Jesus, God's people are set free entirely from the wrath of God. Just as the wrath of God passed over the homes in Israel, God's wrath will pass over the hearts of everyone who is under the broken body of Christ. And so, Christian, if you are here and follow Christ and put, have put your trust in him for the forgiveness of sins, the penalty for your sin has been paid in full. There is no more debt for you. Because Christ's body was broken on your behalf. I, I don't know if you've ever uh, paid off a debt that you had, whether that maybe that was a school debt you had or a car payment or a mortgage or credit card. You know, one of these debts that you just, it was year after year, month after month after month after month, you're paying this debt, and finally the day comes, a joyful day, where you sign the last check. I suppose now it's PayPal. You hit that button the last time. Finally, the debt's done. It's a, it's a great day to celebrate. Or, or think if, if, if somebody uh, in the family member or friend knew that you had this great debt of yours, $10,000, $50,000, and they wiped it out in one fell swoop, paid it all in full, I mean, that would, that, I mean, that would be worthy of going to get a concrete mixer at Culver's, yeah? I mean, that, that would be amazing. Your debt's totally gone. It truly would be, I mean, there'd be something you'd be singing about for weeks. And brothers and sisters, that pales in comparison. That is absolutely nothing compared to the debt that you owe to Almighty God because of your sin. I mean, just think if God had collected and line by line, every time you've said a word that you should not say, every thought that you've had that dishonors God, every deed, 
Every time you look at other people and think you're better than them. Every time you sin against Almighty God just line by line by line by line. That paper would last for miles. And for every single one of those sins against the eternal Almighty God, the one that gives you breath as you sit here today, every one of those sins deserves eternal judgment. And as Jesus describes that, he describes it as utter darkness, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, where there's the parable where, where, where the, the, the rich man is crying out, just, just one drop on my tongue, just for a second, to satisfy, just call me for a second. Every single one of those, miles along. And in the breaking body of Christ, it's like this burnt offering that's offered to God, and that whole pile of mile-long list goes right up in flames with it. Your debt is wiped out, believer. Your sin is forgiven. There's no more wrath of God for you. You have been set free. Can you imagine how that would impact our hearts if we walked into the week embracing that a little bit more, letting that drip down to our souls a little bit more this week? If, if we could say, you know what? I enter this day and my sins are totally forgiven. That means when you sin this week, there is no reason, it makes no logical sense to sit over in the corner in shame and run from God. Why would you run from God for the sin that you committed that's already been paid for? No, we run to God then and say, yes, Lord, I've done it again, but thank you, Lord, for the broken body of Christ. I am forgiven. Why would we feel the need to put up an image in front of other people and, and try to hide our sin when, yes, it might be gross. It might not make us look good. But that very sin has been forgiven. So I don't need to, I don't need to hide that. I can be true and honest before other people then, right? Why, why would we struggle so much to forgive other people when, they, when they've sinned against me one, two, three, four, five times. I've had that whole list that was miles long, all cared for by God. And I'm going to hold this, these little things against this person? I remember, uh, uh, I won't say all the things I did when I was a kid, but we, we did a lot of things that were not kind to other people for, for no reason, you know, just because we thought it would be fun. And uh, well, I remember one, one time in high school, then uh, I was driving home, and uh, I was, it got to a stoplight, and somebody egged my, car, my truck. So, you know, an egg hit my, my window right here. And my, my first thought, I mean, I, I sort of laughed, and I, my first thought was not, I'm going to go get those kids and make, I'm going to take them down to the police station. My, my first thought was, man, I had that one coming. <laughs> like, I, I did that so many times to so many people, to so many houses, to so many cars. No, I did want to chase them just to scare them, but I wasn't going to do anything with it. I mean, how silly of me to then, like, call the cops on them after I've done the same thing to so many people. When we know ourselves to be forgiven of much, we are freely, fully ready to forgive other people. This, this may be a good way to serve one another this week, to remind one another, brother, you're forgiven. 
It is good for us to confess sins to one another, but then let us also say, Sister, that debt has been paid for. And you call one another out by name. You're free. Well, that's not it. The the meal continues. In verse 22, then he takes the cup, and most likely this would have been the third cup in the meal, called the the cup of redemption. This cup resembles uh, the blood of the lamb. Uh, Many believe that they would would drink it, still today, try to drink the the wine at room temperature, so as to to experience it as if you're drinking the very blood of uh, the lamb and participating in the death of the lamb. And, And the host then would tell the story of the lamb that was sacrificed. But of course, once again, Jesus takes this further and he says, now this this cup, though yes, we are pointing backwards, but all of those cups eaten throughout the years were pointing forward to this moment right here. Because just like that covenant was enacted, I'm about to enact another covenant, the one that you've been waiting for. And just as Moses sprinkled the blood on the people, which was called the blood of the covenant, so this cup holds right here my blood of the covenant. So here here we see Jesus uh, proclaiming uh, that in his death, he is actually inaugurating the new covenant that God had promised. Now, this would have been readily, quickly understood by the early audience of what that means. There are several things we could say, but two major promises were given in the New Covenant that are worth uh, recognizing that would be understood here. Uh, The first one uh, is that uh, we are given God's power. So Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 are the two of the major passages to know about the New Covenant where God promises to make a new covenant with God's people And in Jeremiah's language, he says that I will write, in the New Covenant, I will write my law on the heart of my people. They they will know it. It it will be internal. It won't just be an external command, but I will write it on the inside so that they can actually walk in the good of my commands. Ezekiel uses uh, different language. He he says, "I, I will take out the heart of stone out of my people that's dead, and I will put in a heart of flesh that will empower them to actually walk in my ways. But both of them are pointing to this reality that in the new covenant, covenant, the promise that we've been waiting for, that we absolutely need something to break the power of sin over us. Because that's what the the Israelites had been experiencing. It's this, this cycle. They can't get away from it. They not only need forgiveness of sins, but they need something to break the power of it. And here the new covenant promises that I will change you from the inside out. I will set you free on the inside. And so this, this promise then is to, to declare to God's people, a Christian, you have power to walk in God's ways. Now, we know that we don't always feel like it. You know what feels way more powerful uh, throughout the week? Is my emotions and my feelings and certain temptations. Temptation tells me I don't have a choice but to obey it. I'm guessing you've experienced that. You feel like, well, I just have to. Now, in that moment, one or two people or one or two groups 
is lying and one is telling the truth. Either what God has said about us is false. God tells us we have power to, to pursue holiness and resist sin, and he's lying to us. Or our emotions and the temptation in our flesh is lying to us, telling us we have to obey it, but we actually don't. And in those moments, we have the decision uh, which one to uh, listen to. But can you imagine this week, if you went, went into the week and could remind yourself that by the power of Christ, because he enacted a new covenant and by his blood, it's sealed, I have power to resist sin and pursue holiness. I wonder if that would help us this week. And if we could remind one another, brother, sister, you are not powerless against the fight of sin this week. You have power, the power of the new covenant. Uh, this other aspect that's in the new covenant is the intimate presence of God. So no longer do we need to go to temple to experience the unique dwelling place of God, where God dwelt in the holy of holies, but God would come into us. We would be the very temple of God. In Ezekiel's language, uh, it actually says that God will put the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, into his people and give us power. Right? And in, in, in the presence of the Holy Spirit is, is for our comfort. It's for our, our conviction to point us to sin, to, to correct us. It's also to empower us for ministry, for the ministry of the kingdom. And so we're, we are also meant to catch this idea when, when Jesus says, this is the cup of my blood of the covenant. I'm now going to give the spirit so that you have power to walk out in the commands that I give you. Now, again, I wonder if this would help us this week. I wonder if you have anything ahead this week that you, you know is going to be difficult. Maybe that is a conversation you need to have with someone that you're nervous about. <clears throat> or maybe it's a situation that you are going to be uh, visiting somebody that's sick or you have something at work that you know is going to be hard and you are tempted to shrink back. This promise is meant to say, no, God goes with you. The one who made you, God Almighty, the one who knows what's good and best for you, he goes with you. And so you can go in faith. You don't have to feel powerful yourself, but God is with you. Or perhaps you'll be mistreated this week. You'll be lied to. You'll be slandered. You'll be rejected. And when that temptation is to feel all alone, this text says you're never alone. Because the blood of Christ has inaugurated a new covenant for you, that God is with you. Well, one more final promise you see at the end of the passage there. Uh, he then says to them, truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine. He's very emphatic about this, the, the triple negative. I will never again, never again, never again drink of this. I'm done drinking this until one day. That day, he says, I will feast with you again. And so he's drawing our attention to the perfected kingdom. Yes, the, the, the covenant is being inaugurated, but this isn't the end of the story. The full celebration is yet to come, but he's pointing to that day when he will sup once again with his people. And this declares to God's people then, Christian, follower of Christ, this is not your home. This land is not your homeland. We are on our way to an eternal city whose architect and builder is God, where there's no more sin, no more pain, 
No more mental illness, no more physical oppression, nothing that is evil, but only joy and everlasting peace with God. Imagine what your week would be like if you could live in the good of that. I don't know if you've ever, uh, or if you can imagine, if, if somebody paid for your admission into something, something that you really want to go to. Maybe it's a music concert that you've been wanting to see. And this is, it's next Friday, and they've paid for it in full for you. Or maybe it's a sporting event. Or, or maybe it's a two-week vacation to Hawaii. I mean, come on, not Hawaii. Paid in full, and you're super excited about it. Do you think that would impact the way you experience the hardships of life this week if you're looking to Friday? Of course it would. Suddenly a lot of the things that are hard get put into perspective. You can endure them because you're headed to Friday. And so when we can keep our eyes on Jesus saying, no, there's coming a day when I I will drink of this cup with you again. Keep your eyes there. It's meant to empower us to continue on. Christian, this is not your home. You're on your way to a homeland. Well, let me restate those promises. That's what I think the Passover meal is trying to communicate to God's people then, to God's people today. Christian, your penalty for your sin has been fully paid. You have power to resist sin and pursue holiness. You have the presence of God with you, the intimate presence of God, wherever you go. And there is a perfected kingdom that God has prepared for you. Now, if you're like me, sometimes I can hear that, and it's like, on one level I can just breeze past it, or another level I can think, it just seems too good to be true. Now, I can believe it for other people, but when I look at myself, I'm so weak, I fail so much, why would I think that God would do that for me? What we don't want to do in those moments is to point to our accomplishments or or how we're going to turn over a new leaf and we're going to do better. No, in those moments, we point and we look outward and we point to the the very one who died in our place. That's why partaking of the Lord's Supper together is so helpful. It's a, a way of physically taking elements and saying, yes, Lord, I receive the promise that you have given, that I, I, I do have the payment of sin completed, not because of me, but because of these elements, that what they point to in Christ shedding his blood, breaking his body. And so this morning we partake together as our way of professing back faith to God and receiving the promise, saying, yes, God, we believe it. Help us to enter into this week as people who, who trust that you have empowered us for life with the presence of the Spirit and that you have prepared a place for us.